Hi, everyone. I'm Ben Norton, and this is Geopolitical Economy Report. I am joined today by the political economist Radhika Desai. She's a professor in the Department of Political Studies at the University of Manitoba and the author of the book Geopolitical Economy. And today we're discussing her new book, Capitalism, Coronavirus, and War. This is a series that in the description below I will link to so people can find the other episodes in this series. And by the way, for people who want to follow along with the book as we go along in the series, you can download it for free. There is a free PDF version that was made available open access thanks to support from the foundation Knowledge Unlatched. And I, in the description below, I linked to the PDF of Radhika's book, Capitalism, Coronavirus, and War. Today, we are talking about chapter two of her book, which focuses on the inherent contradictions within capitalism, within the capitalist mode of production. And it's a kind of theoretical episode, but of course, it will have a lot of implications for today for understanding economics and geopolitics today. And in this chapter, Radhika goes through the several internal contradictions inherent within capitalism, specifically crises of overproduction, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, the trend toward monopolies, the increased financialization of the economy, and also two important contradictions that we're going to come back to in later episodes. One, the need for a state to regulate and guide capitalism without which capitalism would pretty much inevitably implode, and also imperialism, the international character of the capitalist system, and not, not only capital, but also nation, what role the nation plays within capitalism. Radhika discusses that in chapter three of her book, which is on the geopolitical economy of capitalism. So there's a lot we're going to address today, but Radhika, I want to begin this discussion today discussing what the difference is between classical political economy and neoclassical economics, because today, frequently the, the word economics is used to refer to exclu exclusively neoclassical economics. But you point out in your book that when in the 19th century, when neoclassical economics as a discipline emerged as separate from classical political economy, they were essentially trying to impose a particular economic framework that essentially said that capitalism is natural, there's no alternative to capitalism, and tried to separate the political sphere from the economic sphere. And you quote Karl Marx, who famously referred to this as vulgar economy. Uh, he, of course, Marx was coming out of the trad tradition of classical political economy. Ironically, there's actually much more in common between Marx and the classical political economists like Adam Smith and David Ricardo and John Stuart Mill than there is between the neoclassical economists of people like Alfred Marshall and these days in the West, when people talk about economics, they do actually frequently mean the neoclassical school of economics. And you point out that when Marx published his magnum opus on capitalism, Capital, it was published in 1867. And that was around the same time that neoclassical economic, ec economics emerged, essentially as an attempt to replace the classical school of political economy. So I kind of already summarized your main points, but I'm wondering if you can go further into detail about what these different disciplines are. 
No, I mean you you that's that's great and you did a great job so far, but there is a lot more to say. So basically, you can think of classical political economy as the tradition of thought that emerges more or less in tandem with capitalism, and it attempts to make sense of capitalism. There's essentially an attempt to understand the dynamics of the new type of society that is emerging. And classical political economy essentially can be thought of as sort of beginning in Smith or even earlier in Petty and so on, and then continuing and sort of reaching a culmination in Marx. And the reason I call it a culmination is that there were a number of problems such as, you know, uh, where does value come from? What is surplus value, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera, that Marx resolves for classical political economy and does so uh, brilliantly. Um, so that's the tradition of classical. So you know, essentially Smith, Ricardo, Marx, etc. And then uh, Marx, of course, differentiated capitalist political economy from what he called vulgar economy, which was essentially the scribblings of all sorts of people who weren't particularly interested in systematically studying capitalism and understanding it, but merely in order to produce, merely interested in producing ideological justifications for it. So, okay, so that's classical political economy. And it had two aspects that are radically different from what would emerge as neoclassical economics beginning circa 1870. And those two aspects are number one, the tradition of classical political economy was shall we say holistic that is to say it studied the social whole it did not separate out a sphere called the economy from the rest of society the economy which was then to be studied uh, on its own and its sort of autonomous and independent laws are to be discovered from adam smith uh, all the way up to marx and even before it and, and after classical political economy looked at the social whole it did not did not imagine that the economy was something separate from the rest of society politics culture etc etc the second thing that classical political economy was was it was historical and uh, that is to say it tried to understand capitalism itself historically and the history of capitalism itself so it tried to understand change both the drastic change involved in creating capitalism and uh, uh, the change that was that then capital you know changes that capitalism itself went through so in that sense uh, so it was holistic and historical Neoclassical economics, which emerged circa 1870, and remember, it, it had emerged because even before Marx, classical political economy tended to have quite radical implications. For example, even though Ricardo was a businessman, an MP, a spokesman of the bourgeoisie, even though he was all these things, Ricardo firmly believed that only labor produced value. And this was a general assumption in classical political economy, only labor produced value. And um, so, so even though Ricardo couldn't sort out many problems, he stuck to this. Um, so 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 and, and 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 this already had radical implications so they were even before marx came along there were currents of ricardian socialism which said well if only labor produces value how how come all the people who don't work are getting rich and the workers are getting poor so there was there were these currents and so neoclassical economics emerges because 
neoclassical uh, political economy already had these uh, amazingly radical implications. And then, of course, in the hands of Marx, he essentially, when in, in resolving the conundrums of classical political economy, Marx essentially produced an indictment of capitalism that could not be gainsaid. So a different justification of capitalism was needed. And indeed, three quite different uh, intellectuals in different parts of Europe thought thought up essentially the same sort of ideas. So the difference that neoclassical economics made is that first of all, it hived off a section of society, namely our material lives, and sort of said, this is the economy, separated it from the rest of society. And, uh, so, and then of course, once Weber comes along and he essentially sanctifies this division of labor and says, you know, modern society tends to develop these autonomous spheres that need to be studied autonomously. And that's why you get this social scientific division of labor. So some people study the economy, other people study society, yet others study uh, politics and so on and so forth. So, so that was the first problem, is that the very idea that there is an economics rather than a political economy emerged with neoclassical economics. So economics was the discipline that studied the economy, which was separate from the rest of society. And this, by the way, is understood as a bit of a problem. And that's why academics talk about interdisciplinarity and multidisciplinarity and so on. But the even bigger thing that tends to be forgotten, as even bigger difference, is that uh, a classical political economy was historical and ne neoclassical economics is anything but it thinks that the uh, 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 capitalist economy is simply a sort of self-regulating whole. It's harmonious. There are no problems in it, you know, etc. Whereas, you know, Marx, for example, by resolving the problems of classical political economy, he produced an analysis of capitalism as inherently contradictory value production. We'll talk about that later, but that's what he did. In classical, in neoclassical economics, all of this is gone, which means that capitalism does not evolve, does not develop. It's more or less the same all the way through. So, uh, and, and, and of course, it did a lot of other things, reduced capitalism to markets, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, so, so this is the big difference between uh, classical political economy and neoclassical economics. And a final point, when you take it, you know, normally being a historical, most economics departments don't even offer a history of economics course. A lot of them don't. And the odd one that does will teach you a history of economics that essentially conflates the classical political economy and economics. So, you know, it teaches, uh, uh, teaches you as though Today's neoclassical economics was already there in the work of Adam Smith and, and so on. This is absolutely not true. The radical break represented by the emergence of neoclassical economics is simply not understood by most people. And that's why it's very important that you began with this. Yeah. And we can also see the difference between neoclassical economics and classical political economy in what's referred to as marginalism or marginalist economics, which is basically all of the economics taught in most universities in North America, in much of Western Europe, in a lot of the world, which is, you know, if you've taken an economics, uh, microeconomics or macroeconomics 101 class, you're going to learn about marginal utility and demand and supply curves and all of that, which is really based on this marginalist neoclassical school founded by Alfred Marshall at the end of the 19th century, which is a radical departure from even the, the classical political economy of people like Adam Smith, primarily because they're focused on utility. They're focused on the satisfaction that people supposedly get from goods and services. And they treat it as an abstract, 
society doesn't matter. In fact, the banking system doesn't exist. Money doesn't exist in marginal economics. It's all a complete abstraction. Whereas Adam Smith himself said that value comes from labor. David Ricardo said value comes from labor. However, it was Marx who reconciled many of the contradictions in the works of classical political economists like David Ricardo and Adam Smith. For instance, Marx pointed out that there are different kinds of value. There's exchange value and use value, which are not the same. You can often exchange a product for a different value than it's actually worth in terms of its use. And furthermore, he also reconciled the contradiction that as production increases and becomes more efficient, and especially with mechanization, the, the ratio of capital to labor increases. That is to say that in more primitive modes of production, it's people using their hands to produce. But as they have new technology, there's more and more capital used that is owned by the capitalist that makes production more profitable and more efficient. And there's actually less labor used over time. So can you talk about the central issue of value, what value means, where value ultimately comes from, and the difference in how political economists following the classical school up to Marx see value and how uh, neoclassical economics, and that's still most economists today, think of value? Yeah, I mean, this is a really important question. And as you rightly pointed out, again, this is not understood at all uh, well uh, uh, in our times because neoclassical economics, which is essentially what is taught uh, in economics departments, tends to assume that value somehow comes. Uh, uh, well, first of all, they don't even have a notion of value. Uh, in neoclassical economics, value is entirely jettisoned. Uh, it is, you have something called utility, which is just subjective utility. You know, if I like like jam, then jam has value for me. Uh, but if you don't like jam, then jam has no value for you sort of thing. That's a very silly and simplistic way of thinking. Whereas neoclassical economics understood that value was something objective. Now, by objective does not mean that you can see it, smell it, touch it. You know, gravity is objective, but you can't see it or smell it or touch it. But you know that it exists because it has an effect. You know, if you if if I suspend, you know, if I if I just leave a ball up in the air like that, it's going to fall. I know that the gravity is operating. So similarly with the rising and falling prices, etc., there is something called value that is exerting its gravity on prices, whether when they're going up or down or what have you. So uh, this and this objective thing, as far as the classical political economists were concerned, they knew it had something to do with costs of production. And Marx, it was really Marx who showed that how essentially the extraction of value uh, from labor or, or, or interacts with competition among different capitalists who are all extracting value from labor in order to depress values to the point where it, it's essentially it, 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 it's it, 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 it's the it's a level is reached where ordinarily efficient workers using ordinary available techniques can produce a certain thing in X number of hours, etc. So that's what is the purpose of competition to depress uh, 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 prices of goods down roughly to their value. This does not, by the way, mean at all that prices and values always correspond. Indeed, Marx uh, says that 
precisely in order for the mechanism that you mentioned to function, the mechanism through which uh, production is made ever more efficient and therefore the value of goods is pressed down constantly, precisely for these mechanisms to function, the correspondence between value and price can be a rather rare thing. But nevertheless, they are interrelated. Values and prices are interrelated and, and they, they act uh, essentially value acts on prices on an ongoing basis. So essentially values therefore here have are something objective and they have to do with something objective, namely costs of production. Whereas in neoclassical economics, prices are entirely determined only by uh, uh, supply and demand as though the sale of everything uh, takes place in a kind of ongoing auction, which is completely, you know, uh, quite frankly, neoclassical economics is often congratulates itself by saying they have the best theory of prices, but actually it is the most in inaccurate theory of prices. So anyway, to come back to, to the point of value, you, you, you made one last uh, point about value. Value, which I thought I think I should touch on, which is that value must be expressed in something and it's expressed in money. But money, again, is never a fully adequate form for the expression of value because money's own value can fluctuate up and down. And the management of money is one of the harder tasks of, uh, of the regulators of capitalism. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, when I took... Uh neoclassical economics classes in college, you know, like micro macro, I always also found it quite ironic that there's this constant discussion of equilibrium, but it doesn't actually exist. There is no equilibrium. It's it's a it's like a complete abstraction that doesn't exist in reality, yet alone, you know, uh, when they always talk about um, all other things being equal, ignore all externalities, ignore reality. And again, no mention of the monetary system, no mention of banking. No mention of finance. I mean, just the abstract demand and supply curves don't help you understand reality. But in in this chapter, Radhika, you went through in in, in a very brilliant way. You went through and discussed the inherent contradictions within the capitalist mode of production. And I want to go through a few of them so people can understand these main points. Of course, a lot of this is discussed in Capital, which was going to have three volumes, although Marx never finished it. But I will say for the uninitiated, it is a, a challenging read. So what's nice is for people who are not as familiar with a lot of this, I, I would invite them to check out Radhika's book. And I should mention this. You can read Radhika's book for free. In the description below, I will link to a PDF. And it's actually been made available for free thanks to support from the Knowledge Unlatched Foundation. But with that said... Uh, let's go to the first contradiction, which is the crisis of overproduction. And I actually just want to read a paragraph from your chapter because you put it very well. You wrote, since unlike working people who tend to spend all they can earn, capitalists cannot be relied on to spend all they earn, whether on their lavish lifestyles or on investment. Capitalism is thus always haunted by an ever-present possibility of gluts crises of overproduction or underconsumption where goods bought to market remain unsold because there is not a demand for it. And of course, there's not demand because capitalists don't want to increase the wages of their workers. And if they increase the wages of their workers, it would actually increase demand, which could actually help grow the economy. But this, this is something that's inherent within capitalism and, the, and the, the profit motive. So you point out that for Marx, he wrote that, quote, 
the poverty and restricted consumption of the masses, which causes this problem of insufficient demand, is rooted ultimately as the ultimate reason for all crises within capitalism. So can you talk about this and, and, and whether or not you, you think it is an inherent a tendency within the capitalist mode of production? Sure. Uh, first of all, let me say that um, the, uh, the, the that that capitalist this uh, uh, crisis of overproduction, and I also say that they are the same thing as the crisis of underconsumption, because there is a tendency to imply that somehow underconsumption uh, was rejected as an idea by Marx. This is not so, and I have a long article that I wrote because I was absolutely fed up of uh, hearing talking of people essentially saying that you know Marx does not talk about underconsumption and that Marx does not talk about the crisis or that demand being a deficits of demand being a problem and including consumption demand being a problem in capitalism and I show that Marx talks you know I go through all the volumes of capital of through Grindrisse etc and I show so that Marx not only talks about it but he as you just quoted Marx me quoting Marx that Marx regarded it as the most fundamental of capitalism's problems, and it's very simple. Um, out of the product of, uh, out of the production of all goods and services, a, a part of the income goes to workers, and another part goes to capitalists. And as you say, you know, uh, as you rightly pointed out, the workers can more or less be relied on to spend everything they earn because they always need something more. Uh, whereas capitalists can retain their money just because they have sold their goods and got the money does not mean that they have to go out and immediately spend it, even though they may live very lavish lifestyles and even, even though they may invest, etc. They they're, this, this is discretionary on their part. They are not required to do any of this. So essentially, there is always an ever-present problem, ever problem of demand. And by the way, uh, you know, again, people say that, you know, uh, uh, demand was not a problem. But the fact of the matter is, if you look at pre-First uh, 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 World War capitalism, so essentially 19th century capitalism, and then look at sort of post-Second World War or mid to late 20th century capitalism, the fact of the matter is that Precisely because early capitalism tended to look for markets overseas, uh, uh, elsewhere, um, they, you know, the uh, consumption of the working masses was relatively restricted. Whereas in the post-Second World War period, precisely when the consumption of ordinary workers was vastly expanded, this massively reduced the demand problem for capitalism. Eventually, it reduced it. Of course, it did not eliminate it, but it massively reduced the demand problem and created a, a low three-decade-long period of relatively sustained growth for capitalism, whereas in the neoliberal era, when once again capitalists have been restricting the uh, the, the wages and, and therefore incomes of workers, demand has become one of the biggest problems for capitalism. So, and, and of course, uh, uh, once you have bad demand conditions, the motivation of capitalists to invest is also uh, affected negatively. So that, that's partly why you have this absurd situation, which, by the way, central bankers have themselves pointed to, of big corporations sitting on vast piles of cash that they do not invest, and in uh, and instead they seek to uh, to invest. They do not invest them productively, and therefore they uh, park them in all sorts of financial assets, which of course leads to the rising of uh, asset values and so on. So, absolutely, demand is a 
central problem in capitalism. And by the way, Marx uh, uh, um, uh, uh, criticizes in this instance the says law, which assumes that somehow there will always be adequate demand for everything that is produced, which is there as an unsaid a premise both of uh, uh, in neoclassical economics. So in neoclassical economists may not say go around advertising that they accept says law, but the fact of the matter is that their assumptions about equilibrium, etc., cetera, uh, imply that they have always accepted a version of says law, which is that there is never any demand problem. And Marx, the core of Marx's argument rested on a criticism of says law. And by the way, that criticism also makes money and the independent role of money in capitalist economies central to how Marx understood capitalism. Yeah, and there are, to, to, to be fair, there are Keynesians who do acknowledge this, this problem of the crisis of underconsumption or overproduction, and their solution is stimuli, right? Stimulating the economy to increase aggregate demand, and that does help to grow the economy. And especially in moments of recession and, and crises, it was John Maynard Keynes himself who emphasized the need for stimuli, because if the economy is not stimulated, if ag aggregate demand will fall and the economy will shrink over time, there will be a, a spiral of degrowth. So another inherent contradiction within capitalism, which is central to Marx's analysis of the capitalist mode of production, is the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. And you actually did point out that Keynes had his own version of this. So there are some Keynesians as well who acknowledge this, which is the diminishing marginal efficiency of capital. Can you talk about the tendency of the rate of profit to fall? Um, there are economists today, even you know, uh, uh, heterodox economists, who are critical of this idea that capitalism does have an inherent uh, tendency toward the rate of profit falling. And they argue that as increasingly efficient forms of production through advanced technology are developed, that capitalists can still main, maintain more and more uh, profit by using more and more capital and less and less labor. But um, I'm wondering what you think about that critique. So first of all, let me say that I've always believed that Keynes uh, and Marx have a lot in common. So I do not at all disagree with your point that you know Keynes emphasized a lack of demand. And one of the uh, 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 one of the things that Marxists tend to do, you know, the uh, because one thing we we should you should bring into this conversation is the systematic misinterpretation of Marx by Marxists themselves, uh, largely under the influence of neoclassical economics. So we'll come back to that. But let me say for now that. Uh, uh, Marx and Keynes have a lot in common, that they both equally emphasize the demand problem as well as they each had their own version of essentially falling profits, uh, etc. So, 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 uh, so there, there is that, that in common. But Marx and Keynes suffered from a very similar fate. Both, in both cases, their own followers tended to de-radicalize them. So that uh, Joan Robinson, for example, spoke of the bastard Keynesians who essentially tried to reconcile Keynes with a type of equilibrium uh, economics, which uh, Keynes would not have accepted. Um, so, so, so that is a problem. And, and, and my partner, Alan Freeman, of course, has coined the term Marxism without Marx in order to refer to these people, uh, Marxists who have as, uh, through uh, you know, for more than a century now, uh, tended to de-radicalize Marx, essentially by trying to reconcile his him with the 
absolutely antithetical tradition of neoclassical economics. And they have tended to point to two or three different points. Number one, they claim that Marx's analysis of uh, uh, capitalism as contradictory value production does not work because it suffers from a transformation problem. And again, in my own writings, I have shown and I discuss this in the book as well, this is not Marx's problem, it's Ricardo's problem. And essentially, yeah, and there are reasons why Marxists go to Ricardo. But anyway, uh, the second uh, uh, problem is that, or the second problem they introduced is that they said, Marx never said that demand is a problem. And they say that precisely in order to somehow distinguish Marx from Keynes. But actually, it's important to emphasize that, you know, Marx was right. And because he was right, it is probably inevitable that other people would light on the same problem, and certainly Keynes did, and many other people did as well. So uh, 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 they, they try to falsely distinguish Marx from Keynes in this instance. And finally, they say that Marx was wrong about the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. And all of the, this stuff has produced a vast literature. And what I, and of course, it's necessary because if you are caught in this cage, of uh, uh, the attempt to reconcile Marx and neoclassical economics, then you need a way out. And people like Alan Freeman and Andrew Kleiman and many others have tried to show that there is a way out. But uh, even better thing would be never to get into that trap in the first place, just to recognize just how different Marxism is from neoclassical economics and stick to reading capital. Anyway, so 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 with, with those provisos, let, let me just say that the tendency of the rate of profit to fall is at one level very simple. Both Marx and Keynes were saying that, you know, since over time, capitalism, it, competition pushes capitalism to make uh, uh, production more efficient. Uh, and the making production more efficient always requires increased investment or usually requires increased investment. And that uh, as you increase investment, essentially, the amount of capital you have invested increases, uh, whereas the profits don't increase to the same extent in order to offset it. So over time, the rate of profit, which is the ratio of profits to the amount of capital invested will inevitably go down. Yes, there will be, this is a tendency. It is not a law. It is not a you know, it is not uh, uh, operating all the time. And Marx also discusses a number of factors. Uh, um, I think it's in volume three, he discusses a number of factors that will at least temporarily alleviate the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. But in the long run, this uh, tendency will operate. And uh, people have uh, demonstrated this. You know, one of the ways in which people have produced refutations of this tendency is essentially by focusing only on productive investment. But again, um, Alan Freeman has shown how if you actually take all uh, uh, profits and you also look at uh, uh, financial profits as well as uh, uh, product production profits you can show and then you know calculate the capital base of that you can show that over time the rate of profit has tended to fall and that's by the way part of what Marx and for that matter Keynes saw as the potentially progressive character of capitalism which is that essentially uh, 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 over time capitalism makes a capital itself so plentiful that it ceases to uh, to to be scarce and therefore is is available more available and this is the point at which you know capitalism will have fulfilled its historical purpose and we're ready for socialism essentially so 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 uh, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall is part of the secret of capitalism making uh, capitalist competition making production ever more efficient 
Yeah, uh, very well said. And this is not mentioned in your chapter, but just because we were talking about Keynes and Marx and the similarities and differences between them, it, I think it is very interesting to briefly just discuss how Keynes was de-radicalized. If you actually read Keynes and then you read many of the Keynesians or neo-Keynesians who followed him, and I think a lot of this has to do with the same problem you mentioned earlier, which is an attempt to reconcile marginalist neoclassical economics with one with an attempt to reconcile it with Marx's political economy, but also with Keynesian economics. And this led to famously in the mid 20th century, the, the school of so-called the neoclassical synthesis or the neo-Keynesians, the most famous being Paul Samuelson, who was a professor of economics at MIT. And he had the most famous economics textbook, which is just called economics. And he represents this school that tried to reconcile neoclassical economics with Keynes. That was actually very much in vogue and kind of the hegemonic uh, economic school in the West. And then you had the rise of the monetarists and the neoliberals and Milton Friedman and such. But today, especially with the 2008 financial crash, you have the so-called new Keynesians, which is an even more watered down version of Keynes, which is also has been referred to as the new neoclassical synthesis, which once again is an attempt to reconcile this neoclassical school of marginalist economics. They just can't get rid of the demand and supply curves and all of these outdated concepts from the 19th century. And try, trying to reconcile that with, with Keynes. And that leads us to, you know, Paul Krugman, for instance, probably being one of the most well-known new Keynesian economists. And it might surprise people to hear that technically Krugman is considered a Keynesian, although very much a very watered down Keynesian. I'm just curious, Again, it's not in your chapter, but while we're on this subject, I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, so um, uh, 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 Keynes, the de-radicalization of Keynes involves some very similar elements to the de-radicalization of Marx. As you rightly said, they, uh, these uh, two both thinkers are completely incompatible with neoclassical equilibrium economics, but the uh, they, they try to collapse the two together. Both of them pointed to uh, deep contradictions of capitalism, which meant also that capitalism's longevity was limited. Uh, this is this implication is there both in Marx and Keynes, and this is erased by precisely those bastard Keynesians that Joan Robinson was talking about. Um, Keynes, uh, you know, uh, in the final chapter of uh, the general theory, Keynes basically says that, you know, yes, you can alleviate some of capitalism's problems with the right monetary policy and, and, and so on, but eventually it will not work, Keynes said. And a, what he said is a somewhat comprehensive socialization of investment will be necessary. And almost nobody talks about this because, you know, it's there. It's in the conclusion. It is in the uh, in the bit where Keynes is drawing out the implications of his analysis. And one of the implications is that capitalism cannot be with us forever because it is going to run into these problems and we will therefore need to replace it with a somewhat comprehensive socialization of investment. And what is a somewhat comprehensive socialization of investment when it's at home? It is the state essentially taking over the prerogative of investment 
not leaving growth rates to rely and employment rates to rely on the uh, 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 on the uh, 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 vagaries of capitalists making investment decisions to say look if you're not going to invest we will invest the state will invest society will invest etc so yes and then absolutely people like samuelson have been in the forefront of de-radicalizing keynes and people like krugman are his are the present day descendants of that. And what Krugman tries to do is, you know, he essentially tries to paint Keynes as a depression era economist. So, you know, he may be relevant during depression, but, you know, Keynes is no longer relevant now. So there are various ways of uh, 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 de-radicalizing Keynes. And the biggest is essentially to not look at the problematic implications of his analysis of demand, of uh, the marginal utility, of capital, of the role of money, etc., etc., particularly in a time when, of like today, when precisely all the fears that Keynes had of an explosion of financial activity as opposed to productive activity have come to be realized on a scale that probably Keynes would never even have imagined. Yeah, I mean, uh, Hyman Minsky, who was a, a well-known economist in the 20th century, known especially for his analysis of crises within capitalism, himself, someone who, you know, remember the Great Depression, Minsky, who was not a socialist, but he also acknowledged that if you read Keynes, you see very clearly that there are these internal inherent contradictions in capitalism that tend toward crises. And there needs to be significant state oversight of the economy or will explode. And in that sense, that there is a lot that although Keynesian economics is not socialist economics and there are differences it does lead eventually down that path toward socialism and um this actually is related to the next cr crisis uh, or contradiction of capitalism that i wanted to ask you about that you do discuss in your chapter and that is the the transition toward monopolies the inherent tendency toward the monopolization of industries and you point out that actually marx himself referred to the transition toward mon monopolies as, quote, a self-abolishing contradiction which presents itself prima facie as a mere point of transition to a new form of production, namely socialism. So Marx pointed out that capitalism does have this tendency toward monopolization, but actually, ironically, that helps set the stage for the move toward socialism because once you have these large monopolies, you simply can expropriate them and they, they belong to the public. So go ahead. I mean, can you talk yeah. about this problem sure. of the move, the trend toward monopolization? Yeah. So, you know, essentially what Marx argues, and I think that many people would say that this is his most insightful argument, uh, that essentially competition, which is, of course, the you know, it's natural in capitalism. Competition produces its opposite, namely monopoly. That is to say, as the process of competition works itself through different sectors, in each sector of production, it leaves standing only one or two, a few handful of big large corporations so that you know in, in this what happens is that as more essentially as as competition intensifies uh, it uh, forces all capitalists to invest more and more and of course uh, eventually uh, uh, the capitalist that wins the battle wins the competitive uh, 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 
uh, race uh, clears the field of any anybody else and then you get increasingly these massive industrial behemoths that straddle every sector you know so whether it is chemicals or steel or what have you you have these big companies and once a company has reached a monopoly stage you know it's it's perhaps useful to think of it in terms of the socialization of labor you know marx agreed with adam smith that the division of labor which results in the increasing socialization of labor that is to say an increasingly complex it, it, it ties in human human beings in society in an increasingly complex web of relationships so first in competitive capitalism capitalism socializes labor among firms so you know different firms producing different things and so on and so forth and then eventually capitalism creates these big industrial behemoths that critically socialized production within them so that you know uh, 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 so 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 that the uh, uh, competition among firms is then replaced by the rational organization of production in giant firms which are nothing more than giant planned economies so this is the way in which capitalism marx thought would pave the way to socialism because it would create monopolies and monopolies after they have stopped you know if they have if there is not competition operating in the market all the virtues of capitalism are no longer there and everybody it doesn't take a genius to say that to figure out that if you have reached a monopoly stage then the monopoly should not be in private hands it should be socialized uh, it should be uh, nationalized etc and so marx really believed that this essentially would happen um and in many ways you could see the crisis the 30 years crisis of capitalism the crisis of 1914 to 1945 which included two world wars a great depression etc this was already by this time the monopoly stage of capitalism had reached had been reached and instead of a transition transition to socialism what you got was the it was the um uh, uh, development the emergence of fascist tendencies that were critically important in resisting the tendencies towards socialism and keeping capitalism capitalist keeping the product keeping productive keeping the economies capitalist and so in many ways we are still sitting you know uh, 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 we are we are we are the inheritors of the uh, and of the consequences of that development so anyway so the point about capitalism is that capitalism essentially once it has so this is a very key point in my argument is that essentially once capitalism has reached the monopoly phase it is past its sell by date that's very clear in marx and related to the trend toward uh, monopolization is also the trend toward financialization. And you, Radhika, host an excellent program with our, our friend of the show, Michael Hudson. And I would say that one of his most important contributions as, as an economist, as a political economist, is his discussion of financialization, which is completely absent from most work by many economists, even you know many economists who are critical of the monetarists and neoliberalism and such, they often fail to distinguish between industrial capitalism and financial capitalism. In your discussions in your program, Geopolitical Economy Hour, which I will link to in the description below, people can listen to Radhika's show, which features Michael Hudson, you, you frequently discuss how there is this tendency toward financialization and away from the real economy. Now, this is something that would have angered the the classical political economists like adam smith david ricardo john stuart mill 
who were focused specifically on industrial production, industrial capitalism. And actually, they were, as Michael Hudson has often pointed out, some of the most vociferous critics of the rentier class, of the landlords, of the feudal lords. They saw capitalism in the way that, you know, as a bourgeois revolutionary force that was progressive against feudalism. And Professor Hudson has emphasized how today with neoliberalism, we actually see a move toward essentially what is neo-feudalism, as we see increasing rent extraction as opposed to the productive real economy. And if we listen, for instance, to the, the language in the statements made by the Chinese government, and for instance, in the most recent Congress of the Communist Party of China, they constantly make, they, they emphasize their goal is to grow the real economy. They always say that, the real economy, the real economy. Um, so it, this is also present in Marx. I mean, again, we see how prescient Marx was writing in the 1860s. In Capital, he warned of, quote, a new financial aristocracy. And that's important. I mean, that's exactly what we're talking about now with the rise of neo-feudalism. Marx in the 1860s was talking about the financial aristocracy, right? So continuing from this quote from Marx here, he said that capitalism is creating, quote, a new financial aristocracy, a new kind of parasite in the guise of company promoters, speculators, so so-called investors, speculators, and merely nominal directors, an entire system of swindling and cheating with respect to the promotion of companies issues of shares and share dealings. It is private production unchecked by private ownership. And I read that quote from the 1860s and it makes me think of companies today investing all of their net income in buying back their own stocks, which doesn't help the productive economy. It doesn't help do anything other than push up their own stocks in this big casino that we call the modern economy. So you talked about the inherent ten tendency in capitalism toward monopolization, but can you also talk about the move toward financialization? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, there's so many, again, so many things to say here. First of all, I, I wonder if it, uh, you know, uh, I've learned an enormous amount about Michael and uh, from Michael, rather, and I love, of course, having him as the interlocutor in geopolitical economy hour. Uh, uh, but at the same time, I wonder if it's if it's uh, if it's not a um, wonder if we should call what's happening now neo-feudalism, because that somehow implies that capitalism is better and that what's wrong with the present situation is that it's becoming feudal. No, this is what capitalism looks like when it is past its sell-by date. That's what you have to understand. So that's the first thing. Secondly, I would say that, you know, yes, it is part of the sickness of capitalism that uh, we use the word investment to refer to two totally opposite things. We refer to uh, investing in new farms, factories, mines, etc. is investment. And then we talk about investing in the stock market as though they were the same thing. But in fact, they are polar opposites. And indeed, the more you do the latter, the more you invest in financial, you know, already existing assets, the less you involve, uh, you invest in the production of the new goods and services, which is the lifeblood of any society. Society. All societies must produce every day, every week, every month, every year, 
what they need to live. And that's what investment should be primarily directed towards. And, you know, in both uh, this book and in geopolitical economy, I distinguish very much between two very different types of financial systems, or rather, shall we say, two very different types of bank industry relations. And it's really interesting that Marx, if when you read volume three, it's very, he's very clear that, um, you know, the financial system which capitalism inherits from pre-capitalist societies, feudal societies, tend to not be very adapted to the needs of capitalism. So this inherited financial system is focused on usury, short-termism, you know, you can only lend for short periods of time, etc. And eventually Marx said what would happen is that capitalism would adapt the financial system to its own purposes and create a financial system capable of investing in long-term, you know, investing large amounts of capital for long periods of time, you know, what we today they call patient capitalism uh, uh, and and so and this did happen so for example but it did not happen in england which is the original homeland of capitalism if we may put it that way but it actually happened in those countries like germany that were uh, uh, emerging to contest capitalism and this is what hilferding was describing when he was talking about finance capital by finance capital he was not talking about financialization this tendency of uh, explosion towards explosion of financial activity which strangulates productive activity he was actually talking about its exact opposite that is to say the emergence of financial systems in countries like germany which were tailored to assisting the productive advancement of capitalism that's uh, and, and 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 that's the kind of financial system for example that china has today and even until recently and probably to some extent still countries like germany and japan had which a so vastly aided their industrial, uh, uh, their, their massive industrial efforts, which uh, continue in many ways, they remain much more productively focused economies than say the UK economy or the US economy, which are typically financialized and so on. So these are two very different types of financial systems with two very different consequences. And Marx, you know, some, sometimes people made fun of Hilferding, you know, because Hilferding says somewhere that if you nationalize six large Berlin banks, then you will be halfway to socialism or something like that. And people made fun of him. But the fact of the matter is he meant Berlin banks of his time. He did not say London banks because he knew very well that London banks were precisely not the 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 essentially the planning uh, apparatuses of vast industrial enterprises but berlin banks were so if you nationalize berlin banks then that, that would in fact be a uh, would have been a step towards socialism so in all of these ways you know we are living in an age of the uh, in a certain sense the archaic financial system that Marx had identified that capitalism had inherited from feudalism and from the pre-capitalist past past which Hilferding also uh, understood and uh, further developed our understanding of that. This is the financial system that has now become dominant rather than the financial system that of, of the Germanys and the Japans. Uh, uh, and even once upon a time, that which exists in the US, although it has now disappeared from the US, but it even once existed in the US. And, 
and, and these financial systems have been overtaken by this parasitic uh, predatory financial system, which can, which in its operations by becoming a mechanism of transferring even more money than in ordinary capitalist production from ordinary people, from working people towards capital. It is exacerbating the inequality problem, the demand problem, and making essentially making it essentially putting capitalism in this spiral loop of uh, 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 ever greater financial investment, ever lesser productive investment, and therefore ever lesser growth, and so on and so forth. Very well said. And also, good point there on how even calling this kind of uh, move toward this authoritarian techno-capitalism that we see today, calling that neo-feudalism actually in some ways does distract from the fundamental problem of capitalism moving in this direction and living beyond its expiration date, right? Uh, saying that we're going back to feudalism, okay, I mean, I guess you could argue that, but then you misunderstand that this is a problem that more capitalism will not fix. This is a problem that is inherent within the capitalist mode of production that we've been discussing. Now, as we move toward wrapping up, I have two final questions. And one is related to what we were discussing earlier. This is something that appears in your chapter, which is the attempt to reconcile different schools of economics that are essentially irreconcilable. We talked about the attempt to reconcile classical political economy and uh, neoclassical economics and, and also neoclassical economics and Keynesianism. And there is also a school that is known as Marxist economics or even, even worse, Marxian economics, which is a term often used, which tries to reconcile neoclassical economics, marginalist economics of people like Alfred Marshall with Marxist political economy, which you argue, again, I say accurately, are essentially irreconcilable. You point out that this there have been well-known uh, economists, political economists, who have spoken out against this for a century. You quote Nikolai Bukharin, who referred to this as a policy of theoretical reconciliation. What, what is so-called Marxist economics or Marxian economics, and how is it different from Marxist political economy? Yeah, so, you know, this is, uh, you know, when I started writing my geopolitical economy, and of course, in the decade or so that has passed since its publication, a large part of my work has involved essentially trying to understand what are the specific ways in which you have been, we have been creating this Marxism without Marx, as Alan Freeman calls it. So, um, and, 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 and this, and, and my research is essentially led me back to the late 19th century. So really within a decade or so after the publication of Capital, you already begin to get a very peculiar tendency. Uh, so, uh, uh, and that is the tendency of people, uh, intellectuals who are already trained in some version of neoclassical economics, then arriving at Marxism and absolutely failing to understand just how different are they, even the, the terms and the language and the entire uh, perspective, you know, historical and holistic as opposed to ahistorical and uh, uh, based on sort of 
taking, you know, separating the economy from the rest of society. So they couldn't really understand it. So since that time, you've had this constant effort. Now, don't get me wrong, before people start throwing tomatoes at their computer screens or at me anyway, let me say that I have no doubt that there are, there are Marxist economists who are very critical of capitalism. But the thing is that their critique is blunted and their understanding of Marx is blunted because they are constantly engaged in trying to fit Marxism into neoclassical economics. So essentially, my argument has been that the, what has become Marxist economics uh, as since that time, so is a result of what Bukharin called the policy of theoretical reconciliation between Marxism and neoclassical economics. And since that time, a certain systematic misunderstandings of Marxism have been baked into what we now receive as Marxist economics, which, by the way, is the core of what passes for Western Marxism. And this, so there are several things one may quickly say about them in, in wrapping up. Number one, uh, uh, this Marxist economics uh, uh, fails to understand value at all. I mean, essentially, there is no understanding of exactly what value is. Um, <clears throat> secondly, of course, uh, the, no, the uh, contradiction is completely removed because somewhere, even though they don't fully, ex uh, uh, would never admit it, they essentially accept that some version of equilibrium economics is brought into it so that uh, uh, um, the notion of capitalism as being contradictory value production is completely erased. And of course, the understanding of capitalism as necessarily connected to the rest of society, the, the way in which capitalism requires the distortion of so many aspects of our society in order to adapt the society to being capitalist, not only the state, uh, uh, but you know, uh, uh, the environment, uh, uh, workers, everything is distorted in some way or another. And this also, from this also arises various uh, contradictions, as I argue. Anyway, so so this policy of theoretical reconciliation has left us extremely bereft. And I should say one other thing, which is that, of course, precisely because capitalism is contradictory and the contradictions of capitalism have historically made capitalism expansionist, imperialist. This Marxist economics fails to understand the centrality of imperialism to capitalism. So, and this failure, of course, then means that they, these econ so-called Marxist economists deny the necessity of imperialist imperialism to capitalism, and therefore they fail to understand how capitalism operates uh, or what is the international relations of capitalism, which is something we'll talk about in the next uh, in the in the next program, and because we'll be discussing the next chapter. But so so and 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 the very fact that the dialectic of imperialism and anti-imperialism is central to understanding the international relations of capitalism is completely foreign to what passes for so much Western Marxism. And I should say that, you know, my own focus in my writing has been on the intellectual limitations. But of course, we must never forget when trying to understand why, how and why these intellectual limitations occurred, that all these intellectual limitations have emerged in the imperialist world. And they have emerged in a context where labor movements have historically made compromises with their own capitalist classes in order uh, essentially to win some limited reforms. Um, 
and therefore the, the 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 cutting edge of the critique of capitalism which should be the critique of imperialism has always been missing and of course this is one of the key reasons why having won a few reforms at at a certain point in history labor movements have all been beaten back and are all on the defensive precisely because of their failure to understand imperialism well, that was a great answer because not only did you answer the question that I asked you, but you answered the question I was going to ask you, which is about imperialism, how imperialism is inherent within capitalism. And not only, we, we of course, talked about the role of the state, but also the role of the nation. And that's something that we will be discussing further when we continue in the next episode in the series, which is on chapter three of your book on the geopolitical economy of capitalism and socialism. So with that, I think this is a perfect moment to end. We were discussing chapter two of Radhika's book, Capitalism, Coronavirus, and War. This chapter is titled Capitalism as Contradictory Value Production. Anyone can check out, can read and download Radhika's book, Capitalism, Coronavirus, and War for free. It is available as a PDF on open access, thanks to support from the foundation Knowledge Unlatched. In the description below, I have linked to that PDF so you can read along in the series and follow along as Radhika discusses her important book. With that, I think this is a good um, place to end. Do you want to add any final thoughts, Radhika? No, Ben, I just wanted to say another great discussion. Thanks very much for that. Thanks for all the work you put into this. And of it course, bringing your own, uh, your own wonderful uh, thoughts and ideas to this. It's my pleasure. Thanks a lot. And uh, I'll, for people who don't know, I'll just re repeat that Radhika is a professor in the Department of Political Studies at the University of Manitoba. And she's also the director of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group. And her other book, I mean, she has multiple books, but another book that she wrote is quite literally the book geopolitical economy and was a big inspiration for me and the work that I do here. I want to thank everyone for watching or listening. Please subscribe on whatever platform you're on. And in the description below, I will include a link to the series, the full series of capitalism, coronavirus, and more, as well as the show that Radhika hosts with Michael Hudson, Geopolitical Economy Hour. And I will link to the free PDF of her book. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you next time.